Well, as you have already been made aware of, if you didn't realize, this is the first Sunday of 2017. It is New Year's Day. And as is our custom in the West, we like to make New Year's resolutions. In fact, if I remember correctly, approximately 65% of Americans make some sort of New Year's resolution, never mind the fact that only about 8% of those resolutions get kept. But still, it is a good time for us to reflect on the previous year. In fact, this morning I read uh, Dave Barry's rather humorous, in my opinion, uh, year in review for 2016. Uh, even if you don't share all of his opinions, nonetheless, it's, it's a humorous take. But we've been doing this for the past several weeks, have we not? We've been hearing in our society, oh, 2016, you know, we want to see you go. It's been such a bad year. Uh, per- personally, I, I don't think such importance is, should be placed upon the number of celebrities that pass away. But, and I think it kind of belittles some of the remarkable achievements that happened in 2016. Um, but we like to reflect on years. We like to reflect on what went wrong, what went right, what can we do differently, how can we be better. Indeed, many of us are going to make resolutions if we haven't done so to perhaps, I don't know, lose weight healthier, maybe rebalance our portfolio, start saving, maybe save some more, maybe have a little more fun, not be so uptight. I I don't know uh, what your resolutions might be, but I would like to have you reflect upon your year as it pertains to your walk with Christ. How has 2016 been for you as you have been a disciple of Jesus? Has it been one ho-hum day after another? Have you, by and large, had very little to do with Jesus aside from coming to church? Sometimes more frequently, sometimes less? I don't know. I'm not your judge Maybe I need to preach shorter. (laughs) So, how how has Jesus been for you? Has he been a great savior? Or for you, has he been just something that's pulled out once a week for an hour? Reflect upon your year. For this church, How have we been a church of Jesus Christ? What has God done in and through our midst? How have we modeled to each other and to our community the fact that we are a city on a hill? We are that, whether we act like it or not. So how have what kind of city on a hill have we been? It's my hypothesis that this has been basically a good year. I think some, as far as a corporate body goes, there have been some remarkable things that have transpired. We're sinners in relationship with sinners, so nothing will ever be perfect. But by and large, I think this has been a pretty good year for us as a church. Now, as we face 2017... 
I believe that God has good things in store for this congregation. We are, after all, just a few weeks, hopefully, from getting our certificate of occupancy so we can move into our new building. We ended 2016 with someone coming along to make us a very generous offer on this building, and we hadn't even gone looking for a buyer yet. We have new members that are just waiting for the session to interview them so they can actually become members. We have a fresh crop of officers. I think God has great things in store for us. Now, I really do believe, though, that down in our hearts, each of us needs to do business with Jesus. Because you're not going to get to stand before God and say, I was a part of Grace Covenant Church, and it had some good things happen to it, so therefore, God, that's my righteousness. That ain't going to happen, and you know that's not going to happen. What I would like to see in 2017 is for each of us to become radically devoted to Jesus in such a way that the light almost cannot be contained by our church, and so it's kind of almost pulsating. I think this passage gives us some ideas of ways that we can in this year model Christ to the world more effectively. How so, Ben? I mean, it's just a story of Jesus going to his hometown and preaching or reading the, reading the Bible and he preaches a one-sentence sermon and he almost gets killed for it. Well, I think there's some context here that makes... Uh, it makes it real helpful. You know, Jesus comes to, home, to his hometown. He's already done some ministry. Uh, he was raised here, so he's the local homegrown celebrity. So he shows up and he goes to the synagogue per his tr- custom, and, and everybody's there. They want to hear the local boy who's gone big. And they, they've heard about the commotion he's made as he's done ministry in other places. And so he... It's not stated here, but, he, but it's, we just know that this is how it would have worked. The local synagogue ruler would have given Jesus the okay to stand and, and be the reader. And why not? He's the local hero. And Jesus stands up. He's given the scroll of Isaiah. And he moves around in it. If you've ever worked a scroll, if you were, I remember when I was a kid in children's church and Sunday school, they would make little scrolls and you had to kind of work it one way and the other to find where you wanted to be. He works it until he gets to what we now know as Isaiah chapter 61. And, uh, and we, I say we now know because the chapter and verse divisions were not created until the Middle Ages. So before then, they just had to fiddle around. And somewhere it says, so now we know Isaiah 61 verses 1 and 2. So he finds this passage, and all eyes are on him, and he reads... The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops. He rolls back up the scroll, hands it back to the attendant, and he goes to sit down. Now, this was very customary. Back in that day, you would stand to read. They would all be standing and the speaker would sit. Maybe we should do that here. 
And uh, so he sits, and all eyes are on him. And as was standard protocol in the synagogue, the reading of Scripture would be followed by a little sermon. And Jesus gives his sermon. uh, He says, Today in your hearing, this Scripture is fulfilled. Period. Now if you go on to verse 22, they start talking, and then he responds to them. But his sermon to them was one sentence long. Now maybe some of you are thinking, like my son, that my sermon should be one sentence long. (laughs) But what Jesus is saying in this passage is that the Spirit of the Lord is upon him for what purpose? To be, because he's anointed by God. That is, he's been set apart, he's been endowed with authority to do five things. To proclaim good news to the poor, proclaim liberty to captives, recovering of the sight to the blind, liberty to those who are oppressed. In short, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now what Jesus says is vitally important. But you know what's almost as important? What he doesn't say. You see, if you flip in your Bibles back to Isaiah 61, you can do it later, just take my word for it now. But in Isaiah 61, verse 2, the passage goes, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. But Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus reads to proclaim the day of the year of the Lord's favor, and he stops. Mid-sentence, stops, rolls the scroll up and puts it away. Is it not significant that Jesus says, I've come to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, but he does not go on to say, and the day of vengeance of our God. That's significant for us, brothers and sisters. You see, we learn in the Bible, that the day of the vengeance of our God is coming. Jesus will come again with the clouds and angels of heaven and fire. And there will be a reckoning. But it's not this day. We now live in an age characterized by God's favorable disposition towards sinners. He offers freely to all, come without price and take of the waters. And there's a sense of urgency because that time has been fixed. We do not know when the day of God's vengeance will come. All we know is that it will come. This is why so much of Jesus' later ministry is spent emphasizing the importance of getting into the kingdom while you can. Because the day comes when you can't. And you must be prepared So I would encourage you, with all your might, press towards the kingdom of God. Do not be shut out. Do not be like the ten virgins who are waiting for the bridegroom and don't bring sufficient oil. And they have to go back and they end up missing the party and they get shut out. Press for the kingdom. Receive God's grace in Christ while it is afforded to you. And I think that there are four things we can do here 
that are modeled for us by Christ in this passage that will help us to press hard into the kingdom. First, I think we should commit to believing and receiving Jesus as he is. One of the things that strikes me about this crowd and about first century Judaism in particular was that everybody believed in God, everybody believed in a resurrection, just about, everybody believed in judgment, everybody was looking forward towards a Messiah. They believed in a Messiah. Yet there were those on the left, characterized by the Sadducees, who knew, hey, we live in a Greco-Roman world, a Hellenistic world. And if we're going to get by in this world around us, we can't rock the boat. And so their vision of a Messiah was someone who would help them just kind of stay and go with the flow. On the far right, you had the zealots who wanted to fight with Rome. And so they were looking for a Messiah that would come on a horse with a sword and start laying waste to the enemy. Then, of course, you had the middle of the road people, which really were the Pharisees. And I don't mean to ruffle feathers, but quite frankly, I, I think the Pharisees had a lot in common with a lot of the Republicans in office. And what I mean by that is they're ostensibly conservative, but if you look at their track record, they pretty much just maintain the status quo. Really. So, they knew how to sound conservative for the base, but really they didn't do a whole lot. But still, they, they were conservative enough that they wanted a Messiah who would help restore traditional worship, traditional values, and not these liberal Hellenistic values. So everybody wanted a Messiah. Everybody had an attitude and a perception of what the Messiah would be like. And so when Jesus shows up as the Messiah, reading Isaiah 61, which is God's definitive word on who the Messiah is, and Jesus says, this is now fulfilled in your hearing, the people are remarkably offended. He's the local boy. He's the son of Joseph, the carpenter. What are you talking about? And then Jesus kind of throws, throws oil on the fire by telling them, hey, uh, you know, back in the days of, of the drought, there were lots of starving Israelite women, but God sent his prophet to a Gentile. That just lit them up because there was an implication there. So everybody's looking for Jesus. In the American South, just about everybody will say they believe in Jesus. I know not literally everybody, but just about everybody says they believe in Jesus. But who is the Jesus in which you believe? Who? Is it the Jesus of the Bible? He's the only real Jesus. He's the only Messiah. He's the only one who can save you. So, commit to receiving and believing in Jesus as he is. Second, commit to gaining familiarity with God's word. We see this in this passage where Jesus, he's given the scroll. Now, we, we love to jump to the fact that Jesus is God, and we kind of use that to brush away anything that he does. But really, he's, he does his ministry as a man. So as a man, he's handed a scroll, and he has to find his way through it. He knows exactly what he's looking for. 
And he has to look for it. How many of you are familiar enough with the Bible that you know what you're looking for and you know how to flip through and find what you're wanting to read and you can, and you can actually use the Bible? With any profession, you have a set of tools. If you're a mechanic, it's a wrench. If you're a carpenter, it's a saw and a hammer. Maybe you're a lawyer and it's the law books. I, I don't know what your tools are, but I bet you know how to use your tools. The Bible, the Word of God, is a sword. It's our weapon. It is our tool. But how many of us don't know Genesis from Revelation? I once knew a woman who had been in church for over two decades. And she thought the difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament was that the Old Testament used old-sounding language and the New Testament used new-sounding language. Do you know your Bible? We live in desperate times. Christianity is a wartime faith. You've got to know your Bible. You've got to know how to use your Bible. Or else you won't know where to go to find what you're needing to read. So, please, commit to gaining familiarity with God's Word. Spend more time reading the Bible than books about the Bible. It's good to read books about the Bible. Most of my library are books about the Bible. But it's no substitute for the Bible. Read it. Gain familiarity with it. Third, commit to being with God's people on the Lord's Day. We see this here. He goes to the synagogue, not because he's wanting to show off, not because he's just wanting to, you know, have a moment with God. It's his custom. It's what he does. It's, it's the Sabbath. You go to church. It's what you do. Because God has appointed one day in seven as a Sabbath to him for his worship for our rest. Now, how many of us don't make regular worship a matter of custom? The Lord has instituted one day in seven. Indeed, Paul commands us on the first day of the week. So, if you're going to grow in your walk with God, you've got to be with his people. Notice Jesus goes to the synagogue. It was full of corrupt practices. People who really weren't pursuing the law. People who really weren't running hard after the Messiah. But he still goes. People with whom you worship are not perfect. There may be people here you don't like. The things we do may not be perfect. In the final analysis, we may be found to have done some things that we shouldn't have done and okay. But you know what? There are voices out there that say, oh, you shouldn't even go to a church. Churches are corrupt. That's a lie. Christ has purchased the church. The church is his bride. It needs to be a matter of priority for you because it's in fellowship with other believers that we grow. So, commit to being with God's people on the Lord's day. And lastly, I would encourage you to commit to participate 
It's one thing just to show up, and we are glad you're here. But like, like in most churches, you know, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. Jesus shows up. He's, he's not a, a regular attendee there. He shows up, he's home, and he gets permission to, to read. He participates in the worship of the synagogue. Now, I want to encourage you. There are so many of you who have amazing talents, who have amazing gifts, and you're not using them. I want to encourage you. Participate. We need you. God has brought you here. That means he brought you with all of your gifts, with all of your talents, with all of your experiences. Yes, and with all of your garbage. But we need you. Otherwise, God wouldn't have brought you. So please, please, step in and help out where you can so that way you can be a blessing to us. And indeed, one of the mysteries of our faith is as you give yourself away, you find yourself full. So please, in this new year, the year of the Lord's favor, press hard after the kingdom. Pursue Christ with all your might. God has good things in store. Believe and accept Jesus as he is. Gain familiarity with the Bible. Commit to being here. And commit to participating. We need you. Let's pray.